Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and we are working our way through the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 6, and um, we're kind of camping out in this Armor of God section, and uh, we've themed it Outfitted because what we're talking about is being outfitted for the challenges of life. Um, this passage basically tells us that God has made available to us armor, a, a suit of protection of power that allows us to stand. Um, and, and, and our premise is this, that, that we all basically come to the challenges of life either wearing our armor or God's. We're going to come with either the tools we have at hand, the tools we've created for ourselves, or we're going to come with what the gospel gives us. And um, I think through this study, we're going to see that God has equipped us um, to stand in ways that we can't equip ourselves and that he is going to give us a power we can't give to ourselves. And ultimately, um, we're going to have to make a choice, whether we're going to wear our own armor or we're going to wear the armor that comes through the gospel. Okay, now last week we took a look at the kind of the first piece of that armor, which was the belt of truth. Now, the belt talked about was not the typical, you know, just put it around your belt uh, um, so that your pants don't fall off kind of belt. It was, it was more of a girdle that girded up um, uh, their whole outfit, right? It kept them from being tripped up and, and tied up their robes and, and, and also became an anchor for all of the protective pieces. And so it was the, putting this truth on, this belt on, gave them freedom of movement and it became an anchor for protection. We talked last week about what that means is, is whatever truth you put at the center of your identity is either going to hinder you or free you. It's either going to allow you to move freely in pursuit of God's best for you or it's going to trip you up and make you vulnerable. Nothing frees you like the gospel. And in fact, the gospel is the one truth that when we put it at the center of our being um, actually highlights and shows to us all the lies that are, that are tripping us up. Because if we have something at the heart of our, of our being that, that isn't true, if we're holding to it and it's not trustworthy, um, we're going to become our own worst enemy. We're going we're to become our own failure, in other words, because we're going to pursue the wrong ends in the wrong way. And even if we achieve them, we're going to fail. And so it's incredibly important that we begin with the belt of truth, which is the application of the gospel. This morning, we're going to move on and we're going to talk about putting on the breastplate. That's the next piece of armor in our, in our series, putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, for us to talk about the breastplate of righteousness, we're also going to have to talk about the helmet of salvation because those two pieces of armor go hand in hand. These are the two most critical pieces of armor that a Roman warrior would have put on. Uh, they guard your head and they guard your heart, <laughs> two fairly important parts of your body, right? Now, there were different types of armor during uh, the Roman times. They, they, they weren't given armor by... 
Um, the central government, they, they brought their own armor to the battlefield. Unlike today, when you enlist in the military, the military gives you all of their stuff. And, and the rest of that, um, during this period of time, during many of these battles, you would have been able, you would have outfitted yourself with whatever armor you were able to afford. And so if you weren't, if you didn't have a lot of money and, and um, you weren't able to outfit yourself very well, you might just go with leather, right? Leather was probably the most basic form of armor during this period of time. It would have been a hardened hide that they would have draped over themselves and tied on to protect um, their heart and their, their organs and, and even a leather helmet, right? Which sounds crazy, but I don't know if you remember old school NFL days, right? They used to play with these things. It works, but it doesn't offer a whole lot of protection, right? And so these guys on the battlefield were more vulnerable because their armor wasn't as good. Uh, If you had a little bit more money, you could have outfitted yourself with protective gear on top of the leather, like maybe uh, uh, um, anchoring on um, wood that was designed specifically to add another layer of protection to the armor so that when you were in close combat, it was a little bit harder to get to you. Uh, If you were wealthier still, you might go with iron or bronze. Iron, incredibly strong. Bronze, not only strong, but decorative and beautiful, right? So the wealthier you were, the more likely it was that you were going to go into the battle well-equipped. And when things got wild, when things got chaotic on the battlefield, um, I doubt in that moment you ever regretted investing into your armor. You know what I'm saying? Like that when you're, when you're out there and things are going crazy, that's not the moment you're going to be like, oh man, I guess I spent a little bit too much on this stuff, right? Whatever you invested into your armor, when things went crazy, you were thankful you did it because that armor protected your head and your heart, right? Now, Paul is obviously speaking metaphorically about armor. He's not talking about literal armor we're supposed to put on, but he's talking about um, coming to the gospel in such a way that it protects our head and it protects our heart, Now, the reason I'm putting these two pieces together is because of this. Whatever you put on your head is going to determine what you put on your heart. Whatever you put on your head to protect your head is going to determine what you use to protect your heart. In other words, whatever defines your identity, your head, is going to lead to how you protect your sense of well-being, your heart. And nothing protects your head like grace. And nothing protects your heart like holiness. And so we want to unpack this a little bit, this sense that that we are never stronger than when we stand in grace, allowing it to protect our identity, and stand in holiness, allowing it to protect our hearts, our sense of well-being. Now remember, we're always wearing armor. One of the basic premises here is that we're always wearing some kind of armor when we enter into the battlefield. It's either going to be ours or it's going to be God's. And I think that's true whether or not you believe in Jesus. You don't have to be a Christian for this to apply to you. Um, If you're even outside the faith, you're like, dude, a helmet of salvation? That sounds really churchy to me, right? I'm I'm not a Christian. How does a helmet of salvation apply to me? Well, when we're talking about salvation, the word itself is a religious word. You know, that's one of those $10 theological words, right? It's used a lot in church settings. If you're in Starbucks and you hear people at the next table talking about salvation, they're probably pastors or, or something like that, right? That, that's not a normal conversational word. But the concept is not religious. It is a human concept. We all have an awareness that we need to be delivered and protected. We all have this idea that we need to be saved from our inadequacies, from our weaknesses, from the things that would threaten to undo us. We all come to the table seeking to put on a helmet of salvation. Um, 
How do you know what it is? Well, let me ask you something. What, ident- what, what, what anchors your identity? What, what defines your identity? What makes you unique? What makes you worthwhile? What makes you as an individual, as a person, valuable? If you answer those questions, you'll start discovering what it is that you're putting on your head that defines and protects your identity, whatever that is. It's going to define, in many ways, how you think of yourself and who you are. And, and whatever you put on your head is going to lead to works of righteousness that are designed to both promote your identity and protect it. Now, righteousness is another one of those words that we don't use very often outside of Christian circles, right? You don't have a lot of people talking around, you know, what are your righteousnesses? I mean, that's just not a word that we float in normal conversation, right? But the concept absolutely is. Think about it this way. Your righteousness is what you look to to make you right. Your righteousness is what you look to to make you right. And what I'm saying is whatever you put on your head to protect your identity that that anchors you as a unique, valuable individual, you will do works that make you right in that identity to promote that identity and protect that identity, right? So think about it this way. If you're an athlete, that's your identity. You're you're somebody who exercises and you take great pride in, in being in shape, right? In, in, in working out and all those things. So your, 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 your identity is, is I am athletic. I am healthy. What are your, what is your righteousness? What is your religious behavior that you put into practice to promote and protect your identity? (laughs) You exercise, right? You, you, you hit the gym three times a week or 20, right? You, you hit the trails to run five miles or 300, right? And, and what happens if you go a week without doing that? What happens if you go a week without working out? You start feeling bad about yourself, don't you? You start feeling like you've kind of let yourself down. You know why? Because that breastplate of righteousness, you feel like it's getting weaker. Your identity leads to your acts of righteousness. And your acts of righteousness are designed to promote and protect your identity, right? And so if you're a business guy, if that's the... the, the the, your helmet, you know, I'm, I'm good with money, then what are your works of righteousness? What are the things that you do to, to promote and protect your identity? Well, you, you trade stocks, you close good deals, you make money, right? And when you, when you turn a profit for your business or you turn a profit for your investors or, or whatever it is, man, that's, you feel really good about yourself, right? You feel really adept and skillful. And, and when you don't, you feel weak, right? You start feeling vulnerable. If you're an artist, if that's the the helmet that you put on your head, that's your identity. What do you do? What are your righteousnesses? Your righteousness is creating, creating new art, creating new and unique and beautiful and skillful things, right? And and, and so your work of righteousness, the the right, the things that you're doing to, to declare you right in that, to promote and protect your art. If you're an environmentalist, if that's the helmet you wear, you drive a Prius, right? You use recycled paper. You recycle stuff at your house, you know? If, 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 you're, if your helmet is tolerance, right? I am a tolerant person. What are your works of righteousness? Um, your works of righteousness are, are going to be acts of tolerance and social activism, right? You're going to speak out on behalf of the people that you think need your tolerance and the tolerance of the world, right? You're going to take action, 
on that. Those works of righteousness promote and protect. If you're religious, if that's your helmet, your works of righteousness are going to be acts of moralism and religious behavior, right? You're going to read your Bible and you're going to go to church and you're going to pray your prayers and you're going to put in your time. And and when you go through your religious behavior over the course of the week, you start feeling really good about yourself. You start feeling like you really got your breastplate. I'm I'm protected. I'm promoting and protecting, right? And if you go for a week and it's like, oh man, I missed my prayer time and I didn't read my Bible and all my, there there was this church event I wasn't able to go to, whatever it was, right? You start feeling weak in your protection, weak in your identity, So here's the deal, you guys. We're always working to protect our head and our hearts. We are always working to protect our identities and our sense of well-being. Always. It doesn't, this is not a religious issue. This is a human issue. And and, and another way to look at this is this. That means we all have self-salvation projects. I know that's religious language. But in essence, that's what they are. They, they are self-salvation projects. These are ways that I'm going to go about trying to deliver myself, to save myself, to, to make myself worthwhile and valuable, to make sure that I am protected in that, right? So we have self-salvation projects that result in putting on of self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness is one of those phrases that often is reserved for religious people, right? Our culture loves to decry self-righteous Christians, and they should, Self-righteous Christians are incredibly obnoxious and annoying and bad, right? Bad. But here's the deal, you guys. This is what I want you to realize. We're all self-righteous. We all have self-righteousness because whatever it is that we are putting out to promote and protect our identity is self-righteousness by its very definition. Those things that we are putting out to declare ourselves right are about ourselves. And we get incredibly self-righteous about them. I mean, this is, you guys know this, right? The athlete doesn't just work out. The athlete looks at all the people who don't work out. And what do they think, right? When the athlete sees the pudgy businessman, it's like, dude, maybe you spend a little bit less time making money, a little bit more time taking care of the temple, right? We get like self-righteous about it. It's like, come on, pudgy businessman, right? And what's so funny is how quickly we can become self-righteous. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like you are the pudgy businessman. You start working out like three weeks later, you can see a little bit of definition and you're like, look at me, right? And you go to the office and you're like, you pudgy businessman, you got no definition, right? We get, we get self-righteous so quickly. It's like, I've been working out for three weeks. What are you doing, right? We know in three weeks we won't be working out anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like it's going to be done and gone and we'll find some other thing to be self-righteous about. But, but we all do this, right? Well, what about the pudgy businessman? He gets self-righteous too. It's just not about his body. It's about his money. He'll be talking to somebody and it'd be a young person and be like, hey, what are you doing in college? What are you studying? And they're like, oh, I'm majoring in social work. Business guy's like, what? Pause. Next question is always, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> you know what he's asking? How are you going to make money? You know why? Because for the pudgy businessman, making money is his form of self-righteousness. You don't measure up to his form of righteousness. So it's like, what kind of worthless degree is that? Right? We look down on it because it doesn't meet our standards of righteousness, right? But the social work guy, the social activist guy, the guy that wants to make a difference in society is standing there judging the pudgy businessman, right? It's like, you just live for money. We judge everybody by what we define as our righteousness, what we put out there to promote and protect 
our sense of well-being. The tolerant guy. This is the most ironic one. Who's he judging? Everybody who's not tolerant, right? Especially the religious guy. Because the religious guy seems so narrow, so outspoken, that the tolerant guy feels incredibly self-righteous judging his self-righteousness, right? And so tolerant guy, while he's out there evangelizing for his tolerance, doing a little bit of Facebook activism, right? Maybe even dabbling in real activism, um, is judging the religious guy because he's so narrow. Who does a religious guy judge? Everybody. Seriously, religious guys are the worst. Religious guys judge because their self-righteousness allows them to judge everybody. If you're not in the faith, if you're not in the circle of the approved, I judge you. Why? Because you're part of the evildoers and the wicked. We can't interact with the evildoers and the wicked, right? They're defiling, they're, you know. <laughs> but it allows you to judge people inside the circle too, right? Oh yeah, well, you're, you're, you're a Christian too, but you don't read your Bible as much as I do. You don't go to church as much as I do. You obviously didn't get the memo about how you're supposed to dress, right? So, so the religious guy becomes self-righteous in all of his moralism and all of his performance and allows him to judge absolutely everybody. See, what I want you to see is that we all have an identity that we look to to protect us. And that identity leads to works of righteousness, things that we do that we think make us right, protect us and promote us. And the next thing I want you to see is that that is a desperate way to live. What a horrible, horrible way to go through life. Constantly trying to create your own armor. Constantly trying to justify your armor by comparing it to the weakness in others. That makes you unpleasant and and narrow and short-sighted and it robs you of joy. It is a desperate way to go through life. There was a movie that came out um, a while back. I refer to it quite often. Um, great movie, Chariots of Fire. Um, and, and it's a study of two athletes. And what I love about it is, is that it's so insightful into the human, human condition. You have two athletes who are world-class athletes, two guys that are basically two of the fastest men on the face of the earth. And on any given day, one might be faster than the other right? And, and, and these two guys, um, uh, Harold Abrams um, and, and Eric Little, um, were, were going to the 1924 Olympics. What's fascinating about the story is, is not the fact these guys are competing against each other. What's fascinating about the story is the character development of the two people and the way they approach what they do. They both loved running in very different ways. Harold Abrahams looked at running um, as a duty. In fact, he's in a conversation at one point in the movie with another character and, and, and talking to them, basically saying, why do you do this thing that you do? And the person responds. They say, I love it. Don't just... And they're like, kind of like the way you love running, right? And he's like, you know, I don't know that I love running. I'm compelled to run. I'm compelled to run. There's something in him that pushes him to run. It's not that he loves it. He's compelled to do it. And, and just before the big race, um, there's a great scene where he's talking, and this is what he says. And now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. 
What's he looking to running to do? To make him right. His helmet of salvation is, I am a world-class athlete. The actions that make him right are being better than everybody else. It's, it's interesting to me that he uses such religious language to justify my whole existence. What he's saying is when I win this race, it'll finally solidify the breastplate. My well-being will finally be protected because I will be better than anybody else in the world. And of course, the great irony is this. We know, as well as everybody else, that once he wins that race, it will not settle the question of his identity. Even if he were to rent it, he wouldn't then finally have the strongest breastplate. He would have to continue to fight to promote it. Now, you compare that to the other guy, Eric Little. Eric Little is this guy who's a Scottish missionary, and he puts off going to the mission field so that he can go to the 1924 Olympics. And, and he just approaches running in such a different way. In fact, often throughout the movie, when you see him running, he's just smiling. In fact, you can guess which one he is on the screen, right? Because he loved running right? And in fact, this is one of the quotes that I love from the movie from him. He said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Two guys doing the same exact thing. Two guys competing for the same exact goal, but two guys doing it incredibly different ways. See, one is doing it to anchor his identity. The other is doing it from an anchored identity. I want you to catch this, you guys. If we are working with the wrong helmet, it's going to push us to build the wrong best breastplate. The, the, the righteousness that we try to establish will never protect us. It will never give us that deep sense of well-being that we crave. It just won't happen. We identify our identity. We all do. And then we work to protect that identity by doing works of righteousness that ultimately promote and protect who we are. And what I'm saying is this, you guys. Your armor is flawed. The first step to being able to put on the whole armor of God is to recognize that your armor, the armor that you're bringing to the battle, is garbage. It can't protect you. It can't do what you're looking to it to do for you. It will fail. When the crisis comes, whatever that crisis is, or the language of our text, when the evil day comes, when the challenge comes, your helmet will fail. Your breastplate will fail. Your identity will crumble and your sense of well-being will be crushed. Because your armor is not enough, right? See, every self-salvation project says, if I am just good enough, if I just work hard enough, if I am just self-disciplined enough, if I am just creative enough, if I am just rich enough, if I am just a fun enough person, if, if I can just have enough success, then I will be okay. But the then never comes because it's never enough. It can never be enough. We'll always fall short. We'll even fall short of our own standards. You notice that? We, we have our identity and then we decide these are the works I'm going to do that make me right. And we're going to fall short even of our own standards, right? There's going to come a, a day, you guys, where we're going to stand before God. If we fall short of our own standards, how do you think we're going to do in that day? God doesn't grade on a curve like we do. 
We're constantly trying to put ourselves on a curve where we're at the top of the bell. You know what I'm saying? We surround ourselves with people that we can compare ourselves to so that we always come out favorably. In the day we stand before God, we're going to be compared to Jesus. There will be no bell curve and we will not be at the top, right? Our armor is not good enough. It will fail us. In the evil day, it'll fail. You guys, the armor of God is better. The armor of God is better. So the scripture tells us, the text tells us, we need to put on the helmet of salvation. And here we're not talking about our self-salvation project. We're talking about God's salvation project, right? We're no longer turning to our way of anchoring our identity. We're turning to God's way of redefining our identity. And at the heart of God's plan of salvation for us is grace. That's at the heart of God's plan of salvation for us, grace. Grace is the unconditional, unreserved, unending outpouring of God's favor that is completely undeserved. Grace is a concept that humanly we don't really understand because we don't know how to give it and we don't really know how to receive it. God gives perfect grace. Grace is unending, unreserved, unconditional outpouring of his favor. Now, God's grace is conditional in the sense that it is conditional that he gives it to his son continually. And that's why believing the gospel is so incredibly important. When we believe the gospel, we are covered with Christ. When we trust in Christ, we are covered with Christ, right? And so we are brought into the heart of God's favor, into the heart of his grace. We receive from God what we don't deserve to receive from God, but Jesus does. We receive all the accolades, all the favor, all the benefit. Everything Jesus deserves is ours when we believe in him because we are covered with him. That's grace, this outpouring of favor. So when we talk about putting on the helmet of salvation, we're talking about putting on a helmet of grace. A helmet of grace is fundamentally different from a helmet of self-salvation. A helmet of self-salvation is how I anchor my identity, what I do. The helmet of grace says it's not about what I've done, it's about what he's done. It's not about who I am, it's about who he is. I am okay because when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. I'm resting in his identity. I'm resting in his performance. He took my shame. He took my sin. He took everything that was wrong about me, and he died for it as my substitute. And when he rose again to new life, it proved that the payment was complete, that the debt was satisfied, that there was absolute, complete forgiveness made available. I'm now called to rest in that, to rest, that I had a sub- have a substitute who did for me what I couldn't do for myself and gives me an identity I couldn't earn for myself. And what that tells me is I'm worthwhile, not because I am, but because he is. I'm, I'm the, all the things that we try to establish our identity to prove, I'm worthwhile, I'm unique, I am valuable, are answered by the gospel. Not because of our performance, but because of his. That helmet of salvation protects us. And what I want you to hear is that that doesn't remove your other identities. It actually establishes them. Some people say, I don't want to become a follower of Christ because I don't want to, I don't want to lose who I am. I'm afraid that when I become a follower of Christ, I'm going to have to just become a different person. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to become a different person. Well, in some sense, you do become a different person because when you believe in Jesus, you are a new creature in Christ, a new creation. You are given a new identity and and you are given a new life that is not yours. 
But in another way, it doesn't take away your previous identity. It actually frees you to walk in it. The grace of God doesn't keep you from being a parent. It makes you a better parent. See, when, when parenting is your helmet, when you, I'm a parent, that's your helmet, then the success of your kids is absolutely essential for your well-being. Your breastplate of righteousness that promotes and protects who you are is your kid's success. So you stop looking to parenting for what you can do for your kids, and you start looking to parenting for what it can do for you. You're using parenting. When you're wearing a helmet of grace, it allows you to approach parenting, not about what it does for you, but what it does for your kids. It frees you to be a better parent. It frees you to stop anchoring your identity in their success and instead work for their success with the joy that you're trusting in the one who can bring them success, and that's not yourself. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it frees you to walk more fully in the identity that you've already been given, right? For the artist, instead of producing works of art that justify who you are, you're able to produce works of art as expressions of who you are to the glory of God. It frees you from using the things that that make you who you are to enjoying them. The activist is no longer an activist trying to establish their identity, trying to prove they're worthwhile, trying to do enough so that they feel good about themselves, and they are free to actually work on behalf of others without any expectation or need for anything in return because their needs are being met by the grace of God. The businessman is able to produce profit for his business, to, to bring his acumen and his skill to the table, not to establish himself because look at me, I make so much money, but to actually produce good for the community, for the business, and profit for the investors to the glory of God. See, when you have the right helmet, it frees you. It frees you to become the person God has created you to be. It doesn't enslave you. It doesn't take away your strengths. It doesn't take away the things that, that, that define you. It actually frees you into them. And when you've put on the right helmet, it frees you to put on the right breastplate, right? If your helmet is your identity and your breastplate is that the things that you do that protect and promote who you are, the right things that you do as an outgrowth of your identity, putting on the right helmet frees you to put on the right righteousness, So what do we mean exactly when we talk about putting on the breastplate of righteousness? We're talking about the gospel freeing us to to approach our righteousness in a different way. Some of you who are a little bit more theologically, um, I don't know, your brain runs there, you may already be asking a question, and that is, how do I put on something I already have? If you're a believer in Christ, aren't you covered with the righteousness of Christ? The answer is absolutely. When you believe in Jesus, you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. It is yours. It's a gift. And what that means is that the writer of of Ephesians, Paul, could say, as a believer, I am right now seated in the heavenlies. That's the way God looks at me. I am already a saint. Uh, I got news for you. I'm not a saint. Not not in practice. I still sin. I'm still selfish. I I can still be very short-sighted, right? But, But I'm covered in Christ. So there is a sense in which I am covered with the righteousness of Christ. What we need to realize is that the grace of God, the helmet of grace, is a gift that keeps on giving. It doesn't just cover you with Christ's image. It changes you into his image. God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. He will change us. And when you get grace, 
when you really start to come to understand the radical message of God's love poured out for you, when you start getting grace, or maybe a better way of putting it is when grace finally gets a hold of you, when grace finally grips your heart, it'll change you. It'll change you. It'll change you in beautiful, freeing ways. So that the things that you do are no longer acts of self-righteousness, but acts of gratitude to him for his righteousness. I'm no longer seeking to establish and protect my own identity. I'm acting in response to the identity he's given me, in gratitude for what he's done on my behalf. So I change, but not to promote myself, not to protect myself, not to put an image out of myself, but honestly in gratitude for the one who has changed me. I want you to see the difference that we're talking about. When you get this, that grace covers your head and that frees you to act in gratitude instead of performance for God, it frees you to be more of who you were created to be, not less. It frees you from comparison. When you get grace, when when grace is your helmet, you don't feel compelled to compare yourself to everybody else in the room. You don't have to be the best person in the room to feel like you're worthwhile. Uh, For some of you, that standard's too high. You don't have to be in the top 50% right? You know what I'm talking about? You walk into a room, you start sizing people up for whatever it is you're looking for, intelligence, strength, looks, um, and you start figuring out where you are, right? Religious behavior, theological knowledge, whatever it is, you start ranking yourself. It frees you from the need of comparing yourself to others because your armor isn't based on how strong you are compared to other people's weakness. Your strength is based on Christ. When God's grace is what defines your identity, You're freed from the need to be the best, from comparing yourself continually to others. It frees you from using your talents instead of enjoying your talents, right? It frees you from from doing the things you're good at to continually keep proving yourself to yourself or proving yourself to God or proving yourself to others. You don't need to prove yourself anymore because Christ has proved himself on your behalf. It frees you from using your talents and it frees you into enjoying your talents. It frees you from the roller coaster ride of pride and self-condemnation. Pride when when you're comparing yourselves to others and and you feel good in comparison. I'm more disciplined. I'm more intelligent. I'm more athletic. I know more, right? Self-condemnation when I should have known better. I should have been stronger. I should have been more intelligent. I should have been... I'm not as good as, right? That pride and self-condemnation, you're freed from that because your sense of self-worth, your sense of rightness is not based on external things that change. They're based on God's declaration over you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done on, on, on your behalf. Christians, this frees you from religious performance. It frees you from religious performance. The treadmill of of trying to just do more and be more self-disciplined and kill more sin and be at church every time the doors are open and pray more and read all the things that we beat ourselves up with, right? We feel so condemned and so inadequate. It just gets you off the treadmill, man, right? It's not about 
how much you do. That's not where your identity security comes from. Your identity security comes from the fact that Christ is sufficient for you. You are wearing a helmet of grace, unconditional favor poured out on you based on the accomplished work of Christ that allows you to stand in strength. It frees you. You no longer have to do works of morality or religious behaviors to make yourself look better to God. Or, or, or to people around you, or even to yourself. Because you're no longer performing for God, you're now resting in Christ's performance for you. It changes the way you look at God. You no longer see God as a boss who's, who's sitting back there trying to find out if your performance deserves a reward. You no longer see God as a slave master, right? You're no longer trying to make deals with God. Well, I'll do this if you'll do this. I perform well enough, so now I think I deserve it has nothing to do now with your exchange because you're no longer approaching God like a boss. You're now approaching God like a father, an Abba. When you approach your dad, you don't approach your dad saying, hey, I put in 30 hours, you owe me such and such amount of money. You approach your dad knowing that your dad has an outpouring of love for you that is unconditional, unreserved, and not based on who you are or what you've done. And you come with love in return. We approach God like our Abba. You see, it completely changes the way we approach and relate to God. He is a father to be loved and to love. So what I want you to catch, you guys, is we will become more moral. We will change. But not because of self-effort. Not because we're white-knuckling it. Not because we're performing somehow so that we can get some sort of accolade. That is self-righteousness. That is us building our own breastplate of performance. We do it not for performance's sake, but gratitude's sake. We are so overwhelmed by the demonstration of God's love for us, the outpouring of His grace on us, that we can't help but draw near. You'll become more moral, not because you have to, but because you'll start to see holiness as a gift. Now, holiness is another one of those words. It's one of those theological words. You don't hear it talked about in culture. You're not going to hear it at Starbucks. And if you hear it, a lot of times it's a negative connotation, right? The only time you hear that word used a lot of times is when someone talks about being holier than thou, right? Um, That that phrase that that is meant to be you're strict, you're cold, right? A lot of times holiness is is associated, the connotation of it is just negative, right? When we think about holiness, Holiness is not cold, strict, and restrictive. Holiness is being like Jesus. It's a gift. So how do we put this in action? Let me just sum this up. How do we put this in action? First of all, we need to put on the helmet of salvation. If you're not a believer in Christ, there's an invitation in front of you right now. Christ has already paid the price. You don't have to go get your life together because you can't get it together. You don't have to wait until you have it all figured out because you'll never have it all figured out. All you need to do is believe in Jesus. That's the one requirement is basically to say, you've done for me what I can't do for myself. I rest in who you are instead of what I am for you. It's a response to grace. That's what belief is. It's a radical demonstration of love from God and you seeing that radical demonstration and saying, I believe. There's an invitation in front of you and some of you desperately need to believe. 
you are exhausted in trying to build your own armor. You are exhausted in trying to establish your own identity. You are exhausted in trying to build your own righteousness, constantly comparing yourselves to others. Get off the treadmill of unbelief and trust. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will come under the umbrella of God's grace because you will be covered with the righteousness of Christ. Believe. Now, believer, you need to put on the helmet as well. The commandment isn't just unbelievers. The text is actually to believers, and it says we need to put on the helmet of salvation. How do we as believers put on the helmet of salvation? We walk in an awareness of God's grace. We're continually, daily reminding ourselves that what defines our identity is the grace of God, not our performance for God. We're continually walking back into the freedom of the fact that Christ has done for us what we can't do for ourselves and has impressed God in ways that we can't impress Him ourselves. And we rest in that instead of working for it. And and that starts identifying, helping us identify the areas where we have self-salvation projects that are competing with the grace of God in our lives. The areas that we are still trying to establish ourselves in instead of resting in Christ in. And as we identify those things, we need to go through the process of repentance and faith, of rejecting the false identity and instead clinging to the true identity of who we are in Christ. We need to put on the helmet of salvation, which is the helmet of grace. And once we've done that, we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And only after we've done it, truthfully. See, a lot of religion basically says, believe in Jesus to go to heaven, and they get down to the hard work of obeying God. Right? And the idea there is, is your obedience somehow is going to make you worthy of the grace or is a sign of your grace. Here's the thing. When you're undone by the grace, you will obey because you'll love. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness in response to that. Now, Christ followers, I'm going to speak to you here. Trailhead guys, um, listen up. We, we talk a lot about grace at Trailhead. And I think that's perfectly appropriate. That is the central message of the gospel and the central message of the New Testament, uh, of the covenant that we have with Christ. The heart of it is grace. Grace is a gift, but that doesn't mean that following Christ is a passive process. Some of you have fallen into a rut where you are using your forgiveness, you are using grace as an excuse to stay in your sin. Some of you are resting in the fact that you are covered with the righteousness of Christ, which is true. And you're using that as an excuse not to push more deeply into an experience of the righteousness of Christ. You've become passive in your following of Christ. And what I want you to see is there's a difference between passive and active righteousness. Passive righteousness is the righteousness that Christ gives us when we believe in him. We don't do any work for it. We don't do any labor for it. It is ours as a free gift, and it covers us. That helmet of salvation cannot be removed. When you believe in Jesus, you have the helmet of salvation, and you are secure in Christ. Why? Because Christ is the one that holds you. And when he died for all your sins, that means you don't have any sins he didn't pay for. You are secure in Christ. But just because we're covered with passive righteousness doesn't mean we shouldn't be pursuing active righteousness. God gave us Christ not just to cover us, but to change us. We need to actively be putting on the breastplate of righteousness. That's not a passive process. It's an active process where we are actively pursuing the character of Christ in our lives. 
We are actively seeking to become more like the one who desperately loves us, and we are growing to love in response. And this means we don't see Christ's righteousness as an excuse to sin. We will actively pursue it. Actively seek to become more like Jesus in our lives. Not so that we can earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor. Not to perform for God, but in gratitude for how God has performed for us. And what I want you to see, you guys, is that this is the only thing that actually makes any sense. Holiness is not boring, stiff, alien. Holiness is not this thing that separates us from joy. Holiness is wholeness. It is us becoming what we were created to be. It is us actually moving into the freedom of our new identity in Christ. It's us becoming more like Jesus. See, if we see holiness as this thing that is unpleasant and cold and dark, you've allowed the lies of religion to creep into your thinking and misrepresent the character of God. The character of God is delightful. It is bright and free and joyful. It is creative and playful. Holiness is freedom into everything we were created to be, not a restriction from it. Why wouldn't we want to pursue that? Why wouldn't we want to leave behind the shackles and the slavery to our idolatrous identities, those things that, that, that are restricting us and constraining us and beating us up and condemning us? Why wouldn't we want to leave those behind? For the freedom of Christ. There are different kinds of armor in, in the Roman arsenal. And there are different kinds of armor in the Christian walk. There's leather, there's wood, there's iron, there's bronze. For us to be able to stand in the evil day, we need to be covered not just with the passive righteousness, the imputed given, free gift righteousness of Jesus. We need to be clothing ourselves with active righteousness where we are moving into becoming more and more like Jesus. Otherwise, we make ourselves vulnerable. Vulnerable to attack from the enemy, vulnerable to condemnation from ourselves. We need to pursue becoming like Jesus. Now catch me, you guys. Not so we can be more approved. Not so we can feel less condemned. If that's the way you're doing it, it's self-righteousness. We're doing it in gratitude for the one who has given us righteousness. It's not performance. It's response. It's gratitude. It's worship. So you guys, let's pursue Christ. Let's seek to become more like him so that we can stand.